You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30 and, of course, Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam. And it was morning when I got up. It's light. <laughs> I can't believe how light it is. Yes, I got up and, and I could go out and let the chooks out without stumbling over things getting out to the chook shed. And uh, it was most peculiar. The dogs were ready to get up. I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the spring has definitely sprung. Oh, yeah. And um, days are lengthening. Flowers are coming out so fast. If you're not quick, you miss them. Uh, it's sort of, I love the spring, but it's sort of a frenetic time. You it know, is you, very. You know, if, you, if you're not sort of aware of things all the time, uh, things can come and go and you miss them all together. Mm. Uh, and, of course, we've got a garden opening coming up, so we've been madly busy in the garden trying to tidy up. Um, and I have to say, at the risk of sounding immodest, I've got one bed to tidy up this week and... I think I've done the whole garden. Wow. Which is pretty impressive because it's quite a lot of garden to deal with. <laughs> you uh, have been busy. Yeah, so we're weeding through and most of the garden has been mulched as well um, so that hopefully I won't have to keep revisiting things for the summer. But I have been noticing my neighbour's um, uh, goose grass or sticky willy is uh, growing really, really vigorously at the moment. So <laughs> I'll have to deal with that again next year undoubtedly. It looks like it. Yes. Yes, as soon as you have a weed infestation from next door, particularly if it's something like that plant, Yep. The seed comes in on the cat's fur and on you know animals yep. coming and going and, and what have you. And, yes, you will have an influx of it again next year. And I was so on top of it this year. Oh. <laughs> but anyhow, it's just the way things work. So, oh, dear. Uh, yep. The neighbour next door is, uh, is selling and I've got new neighbours moving in, so maybe I can get them stimulated and working on... Um, uh, pulling it out before it goes to seed. You never know. But luck, they move in in October sometime, so oh, okay. it's almost time. Yeah, so, yeah, so we're getting ready for next weekend, which is the big opening for the garden for Open Gardens Victoria. Mm. Um, the signs arrived this week to stick out on the highway and the road and all that sort of stuff. So yep. once they start to come in, you feel like it's really happening. And, uh, yeah. And it should be pretty. I'm hoping there'll be lots of colour around. It's, uh, there's lots of bulbs coming out and, yeah, I'm hoping to have a fair few tulips in flower by next weekend. There's lots of buds and there's a bit of colour showing. So as long as it doesn't get too bitterly cold over the next few days, mm. um, I should have some tulips out. I've got Fritillaria imperialis in flower. Oh. Uh, only three of them, but, you know, oh, well. that's more than m- many people ever see. Absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah, so there's all sorts of good stuff. Lots of daffodils and other small bulbs, lots of cyclamen in flower. So, yeah, so the garden's looking pretty splashy, and there hopefully will be some peonies out by next weekend too. There's some buds just showing colour on a couple of my Japanese tree peonies. Wonderful. So uh, hopefully I'll have some peonies in flower as well. Fantastic. So, yeah, so it should be a very bright and splashy sort of opening, hopefully. Yep, yep, and we're going to talk about that again in a little later mm-hmm. um, because uh, we always try to look after our good <laughs> friends at Open Gardens Victoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and they're doing, a, I think, a sterling job uh, of keeping a... 
a open garden scheme going. So uh, it's different to the old scheme, but um, it seems to be um, hitting a chord with people, mm. and uh, they're getting good visitations, and mm. people are engaging with it. And yeah, it's that's great. good. Yep. Yeah. We have to say a very good morning to Penny Woodward. Hi, Penny. Morning, Pam. Morning, listeners. Um, I think the thing for me at this time of year is the bird chorus. Yes, it's fantastic. You know, isn't it just it? goes from one day to the next almost this mm-hmm. year, where where we had um, it was quite quiet at, yeah. at dawn, and suddenly it is this huge chorus of birds, and yeah. it's so exciting. Well, I've Love been it. listening to the eastern strike thrushes who yeah. have been starting to yeah. call around the place, and they're one of my all-time favourite mm. birds. I just adore them. Uh, their sound is just so melodic and mm. gorgeous. But you're right; there's all sorts of birds that are up early and tweeting at each other mm. and singing mm. away. It's, it's they lovely. are waking me every. Morning at the moment, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, better than an alarm clock. Oh, much better. <laughs> <laughs> if you trust them to be on time at the yeah, same time yeah, every morning. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Actually, they're getting earlier because, of course, it's getting lighter earlier. Yes, yes. Well, there is that downside to it because they don't work in the same way as we do. No, not, that's not right. Clock. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the bird life is very active at the moment, all over the place. I've noticed the honey eaters are, are popping around, uh, nesting, and uh, I haven't seen a partilote in my potting mix this year so far. Okay. Because uh, nearly every year I have this sort of cliff of potting mix in my potting bay, and the partilotes immediately assume it's a a free cliff for their usage, yes. and so they tunnel in and make a little nest in there, <laughs> and then for the rest of the season until the eggs have hatched and and the fledglings left, I have to sort of dig around their area. And careful, so, you don't cause an avalanche. Yeah, and, and so you end up with this sort of pinnacle of potting mix with a hole in the side of it <laughs> uh, until the babies go and then after that I can use the rest of the potting mix and they do it again to me next year but I haven't seen them this year so far oh. so it's interesting I haven't had them come in Okay, so we'll see it might be still a bit early for them mm. yeah alright well we'll get straight into community announcements uh, first up um, a reminder that uh, Tesla's uh, Tulip Festival is up and running it opened on the 15th and it's running right through until October the 14th. So plenty of time to go along and see the tulips. Uh, now, of course, uh, they are at 357 Monbulk Road in Sylvan. They're open from 10 a.m. through to 5 p.m. And uh, hopefully we don't get too many, uh, too many uh, storms through to... Uh, but yours have stood up okay? Well, so far, but they're not really out much yet, so I'm still a week or so behind, so I'm hoping the best of them will be starting by the next weekend. So well, because they're got... up in the Dandenongs, they might be at much the same, um, yeah, do you think? Although, no, I don't think they are. The Dandenongs are really interesting. People see Mount Macedon and the Dandenongs as, as similar. As on a par, yeah. But they're not really. I mean, Mount Macedon, because it's surrounded by plains, we get colder in the winter mm. uh, and we get hotter and drier in the summer, uh, and we don't get the coastal sea breezes that they get in the afternoon in the summer like they can get in the Dandenongs because they're closer to the coast. Right. Um, and they don't get the heavy frosts we get either. I mean, oh, okay. there was quite a crunchy frost this morning at home. Mm. So um, uh, when I went to let the chooks out, I was cr- crunching over the uh, wood chip paths. And um, so we're a colder climate. We're normally a little behind in the spring on the Dandenongs uh, and we tend to come in a little earlier in the autumn. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so it is a bit of a different climate, uh, although we do grow a 
similar palette of plants perfectly well. But, mm. uh, yeah, so timing's not always the same. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'm behind Tesla certainly at the moment because yep. I've only got probably four or five tulips actually in bloom at the moment. Right. Uh, but there's oodles of buds. Yep. So I'm just hold, keeping my fingers crossed. <laughs> I'm hoping the white ones in the asparagus bed will be out, but I've got a suspicion they won't be because they went in quite late because ah. I didn't put them in until I got back from overseas. So yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they sat on the kitchen table yeah. uh, for quite some time. And they've grown well and there's good buds there, uh, but they went in so late that I think I'll have a lovely show of white tulips after the opening. That doesn't matter. No, well, I'll enjoy them anyway. We've got some sunny days forecast, so you never know. Fingers crossed. And bulbs do come up fast when they start to go, so uh, it can almost spin your head. Mm. Okay. uh, Now, uh, Diamond Valley Library um, have got an opening of their garden maker space tomorrow. Now, they... um, they believe that they are the first library to tie in with the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Foundation and uh, as such they've been developing uh, a garden space to provide uh, more produce for healthy eating programs with neighbouring schools, kindergartens and childcare centres. Uh, they also hold a monthly, monthly food swap, community gardening sessions and host regular guest speakers. So uh, it's being officially launched tomorrow if anyone's up in the Diamond Valley area. And uh, it will be, the launch will take place 1 o'clock through till 3 o'clock with a representative from the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Foundation there and they'll be recognising members of the community who've been involved in the uh, project. Now Diamond Valley Library is in Civic Drive in Greensboro out there and I think that's a great idea for libraries they're communal hubs and and if they've got space around them where they can do something like gardening well why not indeed and and you would get a lot of um, schools and kindergartens Mm. and people visiting so I think it's a it's a excellent idea yeah Mm. Um, I gave a talk at the Baronia library recently and they're just about to start a seed bank Okay. Which I think is mm. terrific as well. So they have a really strong, um, they're part of the Eastern Libraries Network and they have a really strong gardening, gardening groups who come in and um, listen to speakers and talk and, but they've also been exchanging seeds and they've decided to actually start a seed bank. Which I think is terrific yeah. as well. So yes. it's a, that's another, it's you know, getting involved in a, in a different way. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. yeah great. Okay, Friends of Burnley Gardens have got their next uh, meeting coming up. In fact, it is their AGM as well, which will take place at 6 o'clock. But, um, but uh, they have um, a very special guest coming in at 7 o'clock for a 7.30 talk, and that's Tina Crawford. Now, she's going to be talking about plants are the solution in a garden. She'll be talking about right plant, right place, and some appropriate nurturing uh, and how all of that will deliver amazing results. So uh, the date is Tuesday the 18th of September, uh, 7 for 7.30, uh, drinks and nibbles first at 7 o'clock, and then 7.30 for the talk. Now the cost is $5 for members of the Friends Group, $15 for non-members. You do need to book, and you can book by phoning the Friends Office, their number is 9035-6815, that's 9035-6815, or you can email friends.burnley at gmail.com. Uh, also coming up uh, next Saturday, the 22nd of September, is um, a big Clive Air Expo. 
now, this group has been running for 10 years. They've got a huge display. They'll have demonstrations and sales. It's being held at St. Scholastica's... <laughs> that is a Unfortunate name, yeah. <laughs> ...community centre. Now, the address is 384 Burwood Highway in Burwood. If you uh, do want to make more inquiries about that, the number is 488 327. Now, uh, coming up uh, during the school holidays, because school holidays oh, aren't too yes. far away, uh, there's uh, everyone is invited to a very special afternoon down at Cranbourne uh, Botanic Gardens. You can come and learn about some incredible and very important creatures that inhabit our backyards uh, that often we don't know are there. And this is right up your field, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's two for, runs for two till 3.30 on Sunday, the 23rd of September. And it's all about micro bats in your Woo-hoo. backyard. I love micro bats. Aren't they cute? Oh, they're the most amazing little creatures. Yes, we've got some that live in under the eave uh, above Craig's study and you can hear them their little high-pitched mm. chirpy noise. Um, and so we know they're there. Um, mm. And uh, we leave them alone and just appreciate the fact they're there. And if you go out in the evening and you, you see the little They'll flourish. They'll come washing past yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're amazing little creatures. And, uh, and uh, I have a great deal of respect for them. I think they're fabulous. So, yes, I think they're, they're the sort of animal that people are frightened of for no rational reason whatsoever uh, bats do not get stuck in one's hair uh, and and unless you grab one they don't bite you either so i don't understand what the problem is yes. well bats did regularly come down my chimney and get into my house <laughs> oh, yeah, well, the, which i've have, i've managed to solve the problem by putting very fine wire yeah. which still allows the smoke to go through yeah. so it took a, it took i had to find the right gauge of wire because the first time i did it we clogged up the chimney and i got Oops. smoke back into the house oh that wouldn't work but we've now got the right gauge so they can't thank goodness come down the chimney well that's more for their benefit than yours in some ways much more yeah because once they're inside it uh, was so hard to get yeah. them out. It's really hard to catch them without damaging Yeah, them. you've got to be it's so careful because their wings are so <coughs> fragile That's right. Um, that you can easily hurt them. And uh, you don't see them during the day. No, yeah. no they hide. They find little nooks and crannies yeah. to hide. And of course if they're stuck in the house and can't find their way out, they can't feed properly either. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's definitely more for their benefit to keep them out than, Absolutely. than yours. So I'm quite happy to go and meet them out in the garden and yeah. in the evening. But Actually, it does remind me of a story when uh, years ago when we were house guests at Great Dixter in England uh, we had uh, the upstairs um, day nursery was our room and we'd thrown, it was a lovely summery evening so we'd thrown the windows open and we went downstairs and we had this fabulous dinner and we, you know, glasses of wine and were fantastic and we went upstairs to go to bed and we opened the bedroom door and the whole room was a mass of little pipistrels, they'd all come in and they were flying around, there must have been a hundred of these little bats all Goodness flying around me. in the room uh, and I just stood there completely aghast. I mean, it was just so amazing. And the only issue with them was that they were, dis- because the room had really high ceilings with exposed beams and stuff, they were dislodging all the cobwebs from, <laughs> from above. Uh, and we just left the window open and, and they all, you know, sort of, they'd come in that way and they all yep. went out that way later, yep. uh, later on. But lying in bed, you couldn't see them because the lights were off, but you could hear the rustle of wings and things as they were still flying around in the bedroom until they all worked their way outside again. <laughs> they were probably feeding on all the things that created the cobwebs. Well, they could well have well, been. They yes, could well have true. been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yes, it just goes to show you've got to keep your housekeeping up. Yeah. <laughs> um, just 
microbats eat twice their body weight in insects every night. So that if we didn't have wow. microbats, mm. um, we would have huge insect problems because mm. they control all sorts of agricultural mm. pests and all sorts of things. And um, RQ, when it existed, which is the um, the research uh, Melbourne research organisation that looked into urban ecology. Um, they did some testing in average gardens and they found that something like eight different species of microbats visited the average suburban garden every night. Wow. So, mm. you know, this isn't just one bat. This no. is a whole range of different bats. Fantastic. So they're out there all the time without us realising that, that they're there. So you might see one or two, but there's a whole lot mm. there yes. doing this really important job yes. in our gardens. Fantastic. Well, to give you the details of the talk <laughs> again, as I mentioned, it's Sunday the 23rd of September, running from 2 till 3.30. Um, it will be held in the Australian Garden Auditorium down at Cranbourne Gardens. You enter at the corner of Botanic Drive and Bellato Road in Cranbourne. Dr Casey Visington is an environmental conservation researcher. She's studied these uh, beautiful creatures for a number of years and uh, he'll reveal much more about the amazing animals. Now, um, it's highly recommended because it's in the school holidays that children uh, would love to come along to this one. Uh, Now, bookings, uh, if you go to uh, the website www.rbgfriendscranburn.org.au and bookings are via the Spring 2018 NatureLink uh, booking form. So I'll just repeat that. rbgfriendscranburn, all one word, .org.au and then you click on the Spring 2018 NatureLink uh, for the booking form. Now the cost... For members of the Friends Group is $20, non-members $25 and for students $10 and that uh, includes refreshments. And of course all proceeds uh, will go towards special projects undertaken by garden management. Now if you'd like more information you can phone 8774-2483. Three. Pam, can I just add to that that they're sure. actually going to have some microbats there for you to meet? Yay! Oh, oh I want to go now. <laughs> uh, it is. It's a shame it's such a far, long way away from my place. It is. A bit. It's a fair trip to go down to Cranbourne from Macedon. But, it, but it, look, it, while you're there, you get to look at the garden. It'll be well, really there is fabulous. that. You can make a whole day of it. Early spring. It'll True. be just beautiful. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic. Now, on that same day, next Sunday, 23rd at 2 o'clock, uh, there's going to be a walk and talk on horticultural identities in the Kew Cemetery. So this is, Ooh. um, we, it should be great fun actually. This is being run by Friends of Burnley Gardens and, um, you can join Helen Page, who's a Burnley graduate and a current member of the Burundara Cemetery Trust for the guided walk. You'll be visiting the graves of many horticultural identities. And along the way, Helen will be able to, uh, to talk about the progress that's being made in returning the cemetery to a garden cemetery. Following the walk, there'll be afternoon tea, which will be served in the newly restored gatehouse. Now, uh, bookings are essential. Uh, you can email helenpage at bigpond.com or you can call Helen on 0418 
0419 Now I'll repeat that again Helen Page at BigPond.com to email or you can phone Helen on 0418 Okay, now Stephen, getting back to your garden. Oh yes, yes. We yum. must we must give out the full details. Mm-hmm. Now it is open next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday. Yep. Opening from ten through till four thirty, as most of the open gardens yep. do. The address is eight to ten Centenary Avenue in Macedon, but people can't park in Centenary Avenue. Well, if they do, the road becomes a car park <laughs> because it's <laughs> no it's, one will get in or out. Yeah, it's basically a, a one-lane road, really. Yes. So people will need to park in Marshall Avenue, which is only two houses out. So I mean, yep. it's, it's hardly a walk. I mean, there's more walking in the garden than getting to the garden if you park in Marshall Avenue. So if you park out there and just walk in, um, there'll be plenty of sign postage, so you won't get lost. I don't think uh so we'll we'll lead you in with the brand new garden scheme signs so got some orange ones oh orange this year yeah orange i was very very impressed with the the new signs they're quite big core flute ones and it's all bright orange with black writing so don't think you'll get lost Good, 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 good. Now, entry is $8. Children yep. under 18 are free. Students are $5. I'm so pleased some of these organisations are, are making it cheaper for students yep. because, um, you know, it's wonderful to encourage them to go and have a look at some of these gardens. Now, of course, you've got, uh, Craig's got some botanic artwork yes, on the, the show. the garage becomes the studio or the gallery. Um, <laughs> when the car moves out, the art moves in. So we'll have a whole pile of botanic art for people to look at as well. So it's not just the garden. Um, and, oh, I can probably say this now. Craig has just had a botanic artwork accepted by the Hunter Institute in Pittsburgh, um, which is supposed to be the premier botanic art thing that you can get into. And it's a triennial thing, so it only happens every three years. Fantastic. They had 485 works uh, put in, um, and they selected 41. And wow. Craig, and Craig's was one of them. So oh, well, he I should was, be very I was tough. actually just going to say that Craig's work is brilliant. Oh, uh, he, you, he, know, you, you know, at the risk it, of sounding it's harder, it's harder for you to say <laughs> that. I, yeah, I just, it know, is. It's, it's, a, it's is, remarkable it stuff that he does. It is Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so it's sort of like the Oscars to end up in The Hunter. You mm-hmm. can only ever, if you get accepted, that's, you never can enter again. So you only get okay, one, one crack at it. If yep. you get in, you're in. If you don't get in, you can obviously have another try. Right. But, um, uh, yeah, so we had to parcel up this work and send it off to America, which was all very nerve-wracking. Yes. Uh, and, and expensive with postage and insurance and what have you. But anyhow, it got there safely. Good. And, uh, yeah, so it'll be in America for the next three years, um, being exhibited uh, around in different places. Apparently, the exhibition gets picked up and moved around okay. the country to different places. Okay. Um, so he's amongst an elite now. And um, what was it of? That's oh, what I uh, want to know. <laughs> I should have bought the fl- plant in. It's in flower at the moment. It was a North American trillium oh, uh, that he painted, beautiful. one of the dark burgundy ones. Yep. Yes. And it is just truly beautiful, this painting. And, in fact, there's a very well-known Australian botanic artist called John Pastorizzi Panol, and John does a lot of lecturing around the world on botanic art. And... Um, He's doing a series of talks in America soon called Beyond Accuracy. Um, and he asked Craig if he could use an image of that particular work to uh, illustrate. What a great title. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you can you immediately understand what he's talking about. He's talking about, yes, botanic art has to be accurate, but it still has to be art. Yes. And so it's got, to, it's got to 
have feeling and flow and um, you know, movement and all the things that mm. accuracy don't necessarily portray. Yes. And so, yes, so John's going to be using an image of Craig's Trillium for that um, series of talks as well. Fantastic. So, so I, think, I think a lot of people don't realise that botanic art is a totally different type of art. Mm. So that, and as you say, it, the... the to start off with, it's got to be absolutely accurate yep. because it has to show you exactly what the plant looks like. So you can't make the seed pods a bit bigger to get the yeah. balance right in oh, the exactly. photo or no, anything that's like right. that. So to then superimpose something more over the top of that accuracy is actually really hard. It is. Um, yeah. And I, I just think there's some brilliant botanic artists mm-hmm. out there and, and, and it's a very special field. Mm-hmm. Oh, and speaking of which, is. and I haven't got the paperwork with me, uh, but the Friends of the Botanic Gardens have got <laughs> their um, The Art of Botanical Illustration coming up in Domain House in October. It's oh, run okay. for about three weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll make sure you get the details of it. Yep. Uh, it's a must-visit um, yeah. exhibition. Uh, it raises funds, of course, for the Botanic Gardens mm. in Melbourne as well, yep. so there's a, a, a sort of a, a good side to it where the funds are going to something really important, uh, and it is still considered to be one of Australia's premier botanic art exhibitions, um, and it's in Domain House, which is just down from the Herbarium in Dallas Brooks Drive, uh, and it runs for about three weeks, and it starts in October, and I stupidly rushed off this morning and left the notes at home. That's all right. Uh, but I'll make sure Pam has the dates in due course, yep, and we can, yep, we can start PRing it, because it is a great opportunity for people to really see and understand what botanic art is about. Mm. I know Craig's got three paintings that have been accepted for that um, right. exhibition. Right. So he's got three quite large works there, one of which will be a big... Uh, pale pink to white peony that he painted last year that's just beautiful mm. um, and there's an epiphyllum cactus one of the big red ones yep. Uh, yep. which is really beautiful and I can't remember what the third work was he took down and had uh, entered anyhow they're all large-ish works uh, but there'll be a whole range of from tiny little paintings up yeah. to quite large they, ones they, they do everything from mosses and lichens oh, and oh, yes. seaweeds and yeah. you know, right, well actually right a couple of years ago one person did slime moulds yes Yes, I mean, if you want to get small. (laughs) Just the intricacy is often just gorgeous. If they they just go onto the Botanic Gardens website, they'll find the Mm. details. Yeah, Yeah. and it is. It's definitely worthwhile making an opportunity to go down, have a look at the Botanic Art, perhaps go for a walk in the gardens or go to the um, coffee shop or the tea rooms, make a bit of a day of it. And uh, if you can't spend at least an hour and a half just slowly meandering around Domain House looking at those Mm. paintings, I'd be surprised. And I think it's a goal donation so it's not going to break the budget uh i might add though that all the works are for sale so you could get carried away whilst (laughs) you're there okay i must get back to your garden very quickly please because um i've mentioned craig's botanic art will be on display um but there will also be book sales and you'll have morning and afternoon tea and there'll also be your plant stall as well so i'll have plants available i'm hoping to have a range of things that are looking at their best in the garden at the moment so If people see something around the garden that they, they like the look of, hopefully I'll have some plants of it for sale. Wonderful. So, uh, and you're only five minutes away from the nursery anyway, so you can always shoot up the road to the nursery as well. So yep. if you can't make a day out of that, I'd be surprised. Okay. Well, for one lucky listener, mm-hmm. um, as per usual, Open Gardens Victoria have given us a free double pass oh, fantastic. to come up to your garden. So uh, the first person who rings in on 9419 
0155. Can grab that. Looks like someone's on the phone already. But <laughs> yes, there's some people who don't don't hang around. Yes. Um, 94190155. If you'd like to get that uh, free double pass to go up and see Stephen's yeah. garden next week. And weekend. when you do come up to see me at the garden next weekend, tell me that you are the one who won the tickets because I'd like to meet you. That yes, would be nice. That would be lovely. Yeah. Now there's just one more which we need to mention, and both of you are involved in this one. There's some details just to refresh oh, your memory. Yes. yes, that's coming up surprisingly quickly too because it's only a couple of weeks away really. It is. Um, yeah, so the Garden Lovers Fair, uh, which is being held at Bolabec, one of our big uh, historic uh, estates at Mount Macedon. Um, and it was well known during the period of when Joan Lawsmith was alive. She uh, really brought that garden forward and it became an icon to visit um, Bolabec. So this is your opportunity to see Bolabec. Uh, it's run by the Mount Macedon District Horticultural Society. It's a, m- a major fundraiser for the year. And um, it's on both Saturday and Sunday, the 6th and 7th of October uh, from 10am to 4pm. Uh, I think they have access to the car park from 9.30 in the morning. Uh, it's three. 70 Mount Macedon Road, and there will be stalls with plants, books, garden tools, uh, a whole range of different sorts of products uh, that are garden-related. Uh, our friends from Ewood will be there. Uh, uh, there'll be a whole range of interesting things to see. And, of course, the reason that Penny's also involved is that there will be speakers on both days. Um, uh, Attila Capitani and myself are doing the Saturday. Penny's doing the Sunday. Penny will be on about midday, I think, for me. Midday. Yep, yes. I was right. <laughs> um, and um, uh, so you can come along, do the fair, have a look around the garden, sit and listen to a, a lecture. Penny's going to be talking about tomatoes and the new book that's come out, come out which is fantastic. Uh, I'm going to talk about plant names and how to use them uh, on the Saturday, I've decided. Uh, and, of course, Attila will be talking succulents, undoubtedly. Of course. Uh, <laughs> so there'll be all those things to do. There will be um, coffee and um, refreshments available as well. Um, So you can spend quite a good day wandering around uh, at the plant fair. And as it happens, uh, do you realise that Glen Rannick is open Uh, on the same weekend? So you can really make a weekend of it. In fact... I have to explain this a little bit too because the garden scheme, Victorian Open Gardens, has decided to open Glen Rannick, which is one of our higher hill station gardens, which is fantastic, on the same weekend. And if you're driving from the fair to go to Glen Rannick, you will drive past the golf club where the Mount Macedon Horticultural Society Hall is and there's an organisation called the Artist Trail that are going to have... Uh, an art show on in the hall, uh, and all the artworks are meant to have a floral or horticultural theme. So that will be on as well over the weekend, so you could drive from Bolabec, past the golf club hall and call in there and have a look at the artworks, and then go to Glen Rannick. Or, of course, conversely, you could start at Glen Rannick and work your way down the hill to Bolabec. So there's three events sort of going in conjunction with each other. So if that doesn't fill a day, I don't know what will. Mm. So, yes, yeah, so oh, it's Glenn too Rick. much for one day. You've got well, to stay for the weekend. Well, there is that, of course. There's <laughs> some very nice B&Bs and things around Mount Macedon, so you could come up for the weekend. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, so there's lots and lots to do. And, of course, you could throw a visit into Dixonia Rare Plants whilst you're up there as well. So, but our Garden Lovers Fair has been going on for some years now, and it just seems to go from strength to strength. And um, I would certainly not want to miss it.
So, um, yes, if you make it on the Sunday, you'll be able to listen to Penny. If you're there on the Saturday, it'll be myself and, and Attila. I'm talking at 11 in the morning. Uh, I think Attila's doing sort of 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Is it down here? I don't no, know. No, it's not. No, it's not there. Ah, uh, I'm pretty sure it's 1 o'clock. But anyhow, if you're there, you'll want to be there before and after anyway. So if you make sure you're there early enough, uh, you can wander around until the, the talk starts with Attila. But I know mine starts at 11 o'clock on the Saturday morning. Um, and all things being Equal, if the weather's fine, it's just going to be an idyllic weekend. So, and Bollebeck should be looking fantastic. The daffodils are all out, and uh, the lawns are lovely and green, mm. and you know, blossom trees will be in flower. I mean, it's just going to be gorgeous. Gorgeous. Yeah. So the, the entry's $12 for adults? Yes, $12 for adults. But uh, if you do stay for the whole weekend, you can have 20, do it for $20. And yeah. You can come and go oh, as you like. So that you've got a weekend yeah. pass. Yes, you can get a weekend pass for a couple That's of dollars cheaper. Um, so if you are sticking around, you can come in twice, which I think is a good idea. Mm. Um, and they'll have a plant crèche there. So you know, if you're getting yourself rather loaded up, uh, as we do, mm. uh, <laughs> you can go and keep going backwards and forwards and dropping your plants off at the plant crèche. Um, so... I think they've got most bases covered. Yep. So it should be great fun. And uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing everybody up there. Brilliant. Mm. Okay. Now, I think we have uh, Gwen, but I'm not sure which line she's on. I'm just going to see if I can get onto her. Are you there, Gwen? I'm here. Ah, good, good, good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I had to have a guess between six different lines there, so uh, I've got you. There you go. Here I am. Look, I just thought I'd ring in with the dates for the um, Art of Botanical Illustration. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Gwen. Yeah, that's all right. It's easy to, you know, these comes out of the left field sometimes, don't they? Yes. They do. You're probably up late watching the football last night or something. Oh, yeah, me, sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's not Stephen. (laughs) Right. um, I've just got a notice about it here. It runs from the 13th, which is a Saturday, to the 28th of October. And it's open daily, 10am to 4pm. I thought it'd be handy for people to know that. Yeah, put it straight in the diary. Mm. Well, it's a busy time of the year, spring for garden lovers. And, you know, people can sort of jot it in. Well, look, I'll try and go on that day. But October 13 to 28 at 10 till 4. And while I've been hanging on, I thought this is becoming a very arty garden show today. (laughs) It is. It is. And Dandenong's Macedon reminded me, I've got another notice here, um, up at the Kawara Native Garden at Kalarama on the main road there, um, they've got an exhibition coming up just for one week this month uh, from next Sunday through to Sunday the 30th of September. Um, Now, I'm not sure of the times... I'll, I'll get, give you a phone number if you want to check up, but people might be going up to the Dandenongs. It's called Designed Down Under, Handcrafts with an Australian Theme. Yeah. Now, you know, that's a native <coughs> garden, so it's going to be flowers and birds and, you know, all that sort of thing, no doubt. But if you want further information, um, 9728-4256. Uh, and probably it's best during the week to um, ring that number to get the information because that garden is only staffed by volunteers in the afternoons on weekends. Ah, fair enough. 9728-4256 and that's for all sorts of handcrafts with an Australian theme. Well, there you go, see, and they don't think we're artistic wee gardeners. (laughs) 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 Okay, I'll leave you to it. Great. Thanks, Gwen. Thanks, Gwen. Bye. Bye. Now, uh... 
a listener, um, uh, firstly, um, a question for Penny there. Um, question from John in Hampton. What is the best type of tarragon to grow? He's previously tried Russian and is aware of French, but curious if there is another better type. Okay. Um, the true tarragon, which is the Artemisia dracunculus, um, is French tarragon. Mm. You sh- don't ever bother growing Russian tarragon. Russian tarragon just has no flavour at all. Um, <laughs> so it's pointless, really. <laughs> well, it is, but people sell it because it's easier to grow. Yeah, yes, so there's always this reputation, as, isn't it? As yeah. tarragon, mm. um, but it's not actually tarragon. It's not what you want to use in your cooking. True French tarragon doesn't actually flower or produce seeds, so mm-hmm. you can only grow it from um, from root cuttings. Oh, so it has to be divided or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's more expensive to produce, yeah. and so if they can grow it from seed, they grow it and sell it and shouldn't buy it. It's a waste, total waste of time and space. So having said that, though, uh, French tarragon has something of a reputation for being sort of miffy. Um, um, is it really yeah, that it, hard to grow? It's actually pretty easy to grow. One of the problems is that in every European book that you read, it will tell you to grow it in full sun. Full sun is too hot. Ah, where we are. Mm. You should always grow it in a position where it gets afternoon shade, at least. Uh Um, Otherwise, it won't survive. And it dies back completely in winter. So you've got to be aware of that as well. It reshoots again much later in the season. Oh, so it doesn't come up straight away. No, than any other tarragon. So I find that I have to put a stake in. And actually remember where it is. (laughs) To remember where it is, because otherwise I forget. So, so if you do those two things, you can have a really, if you find the right spot for it, it's actually relatively easy to grow. The only other tarragon is one that's um, sometimes sold as perennial tarragon, which is actually a marigold. And I've temporarily forgotten the um, botanical name. Um, but it, it grows better in warmer climates. So it, French tarragon does better in cooler climates. Mm-hmm. Um, if you grow this other one, with them in, which is the marigold. It would be is a called, it's, or something. Yeah, it's yeah. Tajitis something, but yeah. um, it's, a, it's called winter tarragon mm. um, because it grows well in the winter in warmer climates. But not necessarily but, down here. No, it will do okay, but mm. I would... Look, it's got quite a nice flavour. I just don't think it's as good as the French tarragon. So if you want true tarragon... Nor do the I French agree. think it's as good as you the just, French tarragon, I'm sure. You just need to grow up the artisimia... <laughs> We're all doing it this Dra- morning. Dracunculus, which is called that because it's supposed to be the way its roots spread around. It's supposed to be sort of like a dragon. Ah. ah. Oh, so it should be in Harry Potter then. Yes, yes like it should. <laughs> like yes. my mandrake. Yes. I've got that in flower at the moment oh, in the garden. Well oh, I love it's, mandrake. It's interesting, isn't it? Oh, it's the most beautiful really plant. You've got these huge big leaves that sit like yeah. a rosette with this posy of purple-blue yeah. flowers that sit down in the centre. Yeah. And it's the most fabulous-looking plant. And um, you, but you know you can never dig it up, though. Don't yeah, because you know, it, it won't scre- hurt me. It screams at you and does all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, and I'll go mad, things. but it's yeah. all right. I'm already mad, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I can, but I have, I've raised a few little tiny seedlings yeah. this year. I managed to hand-pollinate well it last year, and I've got about, I don't know, 10 or a dozen little tiny uh, mandrakes Very coming along. poisonous. Yeah, so but that's right. You've got to no. consume it yeah. first. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I've never had a fear of poison plants. No, because I don't either, but yeah. I just, some of them, when they develop this sort of herbal um, aura, yeah. people think that you can eat them, and, oh. and you really can't. So anything that, that is seen as a, as a herb 
is not necessarily one Edible. that you can take internally. Yes. You no. just need to remember that. You need well, to some of them are herbs that actually are used medicinally, yeah, but in such they're, they're tiny quantities. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to go out and eat foxgloves yeah. in the garden, no. are you? Well, no, you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> um, nor should you eat true deadly nightshade no. either. No. <laughs> Apparently, it's not good for one. Um, but they're really interesting plants, and oh, um, I've absolutely. always wanted to have the sort of poison bed. Yes. Somewhere, you know, to, yeah. with a, instead of a bird bath, I'd have an axe stuck in a mm. chopping block or something like that with some chook feathers thrown around yeah. uh, and do something really bizarre. But I've run out of room now, so I can't do it. Oh, well, there you go. But I've got some of the plants. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, now, another listener has asked about staghorns. Um, on some of the new growth, there's white mould. Is there anything she can do about this? She's been using seaweed and power feed to water the staghorn. Well, I'd keep the power feed down a wee bit Mm. because most of these epiphytic plants like the stag ferns and things don't like a lot of feeding. Uh, You can actually overdo it quite easily. Uh, The sea sole's fine because it's more a tonic-y thing, but really they'll sit stuck on a board on the wall of the house with a bit of water and nothing done to them other than that for years. Uh, So, you know, they really, really don't need a lot of feeding. So I'd keep that back to a minimum. Uh, And unfortunately, most ferns don't like like sprays. Most of the fungal things and, and, and insecticidal sprays and things you've got to be very careful with because they've got quite sensitive fronds and they can very easily burn or, or get damaged by sprays. Um, if it is truly a white mould, uh, I don't think it's going to do a lot of harm. Um, and you could probably just gently wipe it off with a, a, a cloth with perhaps a little bit of white oil or something on it, maybe something like that. Or milk. Or milk, milk might work, yeah. But I certainly wouldn't do anything too invasive. And do keep in mind, everybody, when they get brown stuff on the back of the frond, that isn't a disease, that's spores. Yeah. <laughs> and I get regularly people asking me what the brown stuff on the fronds is. Yeah. Um, and she might also just be overwatering it. Yeah, yeah, because they don't need a lot of no, water. No, uh, they need just... to be moist in behind, yeah. but they don't. The leaves don't actually need to be moist all no, the time. No, so it could be that. And, and you know, if it's getting reasonable air circulation, that helps a bit too. If it's in a really stagnant sort of spot, a lot of these fungal things become more more of a problem. Um, and of course, if it is mounted on a board or something, well, then you're not locked into where you've got it hanging. If it's not a spot that it seems to be working in, you can move it. Mm. But if it is attached to the wall, it's a problem. Yep, yep. Uh, Yeah, so I wouldn't be doing anything major with it. And as long as in other respects the plant's looking reasonably healthy, it's probably not doing too much harm. Mm. Good, good. Penny. Oh, this is um, the latest edition of Organic Gardener, which has only just hit the shelves. So this is the time of year where we do two issues in two months, and this is the second one. And... um, I think it's got some really good articles in it. Linda Coburn is to, has got an article about rare beans. Huh. And I think that we're not growing enough beans. We're not growing enough of the of the dried beans. Yeah. Um, and that could be a really important way of feeding the world, you know, given that we're perhaps going to have problems with sourcing enough food for everybody. Dried beans are something that's really easy to grow. And what Linda is trying to do, and she talks about it in the article, is to preserve the beans, the unusual beans that we have in Australia. Mm-hmm. So she's, um, she's talking about some really unusual beans, some that have come out of the US from the American Indian populations. Um, but also we've got some very peculiar Australian beans as well. Oh, really? Um, and these are all, all dried beans. And some of them are just beautiful. They're sort of burgundy colours and burgundy and white and they're 
they're spotted and speckled and, you know, they're just a joy to sort of hold, even hold in your hand. They're lovely to have in a bowl sitting on yeah, the table, they're, they're I reckon. Pretty, they just yeah. they look so pretty. They're yeah, just they gorgeous. Um, so these these are beans that are distinct from the from the um, yeah, green, the beans. green beans. So, that although usually... some green beans, if you harvest them early, you can use as green beans. If you leave them on, you can mm. you can harvest them as dried beans. So that's a really interesting article. Um, there's um, Karen's got some um, in plant. She's done some um, writing about some different fruits. Um, and the main, the main one I wanted to talk about is that I really enjoyed researching this article, but I've written an article about um, plants that are used in perfume, ah. in perfumery. Mm-hmm. So not just scented plants for the garden, but these are specifically plants that are used in perfumery and finding out um, things like jasmine, like mm-hmm. so jasminium polyanthemum. Um, is one is used in something like 80% of commercial perfumes. Really? Um, the gracious. actual, this is the scent from the flower. Mm. And uh, English lavender, which is important in perfume roses, but also some of the citrus that are used in perfumes. So, mm. so things like um, bergamot, which yeah. is, which is, this is the citrus bergamot, so citrus bergamia. Um, and it's actually the rind that's used in the in the. And that's perfume. what's in Earl Grey tea, isn't it? It is. That's yes. the perfume that's in mm. Earl Grey tea. But it's used widely in perfume, and um, things that you will have heard of, but can't be grown in Australia. But things like frankincense and myrrh. But neroli, which is quite a well-known perfume, actually comes from um, the Seville orange or the oh. bitter orange. So it comes from the peel of. of I've the got Seville one of them. Well, you can use it. It makes fabulous marmalade. But you yeah. can also. By crushing the the skin, you can um, express the oil, and you can use it in perfumes, and oh. you can make essential oil. Eve Salah Stephen. So, <laughs> yes. Um, and rose geranium and tuberose, oh, yeah. uh, they're all used widely mm. in, in commercial perfumes. Mm. And you've got first of all, you have to produce the essential oils, and there are different ways of doing that, whether it's steam distillation or expression or enfleurage. Um, some of them are quite technical and beyond your average gardener. But with jasmine, for instance, in flower at the moment, you could just put the jasmine flowers in after drying them, put them into into a light oil, mm. and get the scented the scent from the jasmine into that light oil by keeping it in a warm position for a couple of months. Um, and that can be used as a massage oil or or something like that. But but to actually extract the oil from in the way they do it commercially is quite complicated. Mm. So I haven't tried to explain that in the article. But it, it was a, I found it really interesting re- to research and um, it was interesting that different um, perfumes have different notes. Mm. So you have high note perfumes, middle note perfumes and base note perfumes. So the high note ones are the ones that release the smell really easily and it's very volatile. So all the citrus perfumes are, are high notes. Mm. The floral perfumes like lavender and um, tuberose and jasmine are in the middle. They're the middle note, and mm-hmm. they form the main basis of the perfume, the sort of solid. And then the base notes are things like the orris root oh, yes. um, from the orris root. Iris and um, patchouli is another base mm. note. And they can be quite earthy scents, but they anchor the whole perfume. And if you're making a perfume, so you can actually buy essential, well-made essential oils and make your own perfume, um, you need to mix the, the different notes. So you need to have some high notes, you know, a couple of high notes, a couple of middle notes and, and, and a base note to hold the whole thing together. Mm. 
So and I then do, you can I, charge a fortune, apparently. Well, <laughs> yes, you can. Well, you can just use it yourself and have a bit of fun. But I just found it a really interesting. Some some articles you you um, sort of write about things that you know, and other involve a lot of research. And I just found it a really interesting mm. research. And um, so I hope you know, readers find it mm. interesting as well. So the magazine is out now? The magazine is out now. It's the um, October issue, and it's got a whole lot of um, plants in pots on the cover. Okay, fantastic. Well, <coughs> I'm delighted to uh, welcome online uh, into the studio Jim Fogarty. Jim, of course, is an award-winning landscape designer, uh, tour leader, gardening media personality. Yeah, everything, really. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning, Jim. Yeah, a bit like yourselves. Good morning. <laughs> like a, a great reunion for us all. It well, is, it is isn't rather, it? isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Now, Jim, uh, in November you're heading off to Japan again. I was very lucky uh, to come with you last year to... Uh, Look at all those wonderful Japanese gardens um, in all their autumn colouring last year, but you're heading off again in November, I believe. I am. That's right, yeah. And, uh, and uh, coming up uh, in our sort of June, July next year is a new uh, garden tour to England, which I'm very excited about as well. Now, this is, this is a fascinating tour. Um, I've been reading through... Uh, through some of the highlights, and I, we should explain first of all, it is a designer's guide to the gardens of England. But um, you're actually looking at contemporary gardens, but um, through the eyes of some of the more well-known um, historic gardens. So you're seeing how those um, historic gardens have influenced some of the um, the contemporary garden designers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're, we're seeing, you know, the staples like Hidcurt and Kissgate, Great Dixter, Sissinghurst, uh, and the Manor House by Gertrude Jekyll. But, but what, see, what I find interesting with uh, what's happening in Europe is that they're looking a bit more outward with uh, the changing climate. You know, they've had a really hot, dry summer in England this year. So they're sort of looking to countries like Australia even as, you know, how can we sort of change the way we're designing and creating gardens? Um, and, and there's this new trend coming out of Europe, which a lot of us are quite familiar with, but it's this sort of perennial prairie or meadow or naturalistic style planting schemes that they're doing. And from my point of view, it resonates very much with Australian gardens because really it's what we've been doing for, you know, 100 years here, but going back beyond, you know, before us, uh, Indigenous culture, uh, and, and just the natural look of, of the Australian landscape um, that these European designers are sort of picking up on. And, uh, you know, not only Australia, but places like South Africa and, and the Californian sort of style as well. So we're sort of exploring this naturalistic style of gardening uh, that's coming out of England, you know, and we're looking at the work of people like Tom Stewart Smith and Piet Udoff. Uh, Christopher Bradley Hall and a, a very good friend of mine, Andy Sturgeon, as well. So it's sort of quite exciting. So you're actually going to visit gardens that are familiar, but you're also going to visit gardens that may in fact not be on the usual sort of tourist uh, tick-off list when you go to England to look at gardens. That's exactly right. So a lot of these gardens, uh, I don't believe, you know, I mean, some of them uh, have been visited before, but we're actually going to Tom Stewart Smith's own gardens at Sir Chill and the Barn, for instance. So we're sort of getting access to some pretty unique and special gardens. Um, you know, we're, we're spending some time with Andy Sturgeon in person. 
I um, think that'll be amazing. It, it will be great because, I mean, we, you know, we've all seen gardens in England and it's probably one of the most popular tours is to go to England, uh, see the Staple Gardens, go to the Chelsea Flower Show. But this one is completely different. And, in fact, we're going... Because Chelsea Flower Show is not at a great time of the year for gardening in, in England. And, in fact, it's probably one of the biggest problems of Chelsea is that it's arguably a little bit early and the mm. weather can be quite cold and it's very hard to get plants into flower. So... We're going that June-July time, and we're visiting Hampton Court Palace Flower Show, um, which I've exhibited at, and uh, and I find that time of year a lot better in England because it's warmer. Mm-hmm. It can be quite hot, in fact, and you really get a better sense of uh, of perennial plants and how they work in the landscape. So, what's the dates of the tour, Jim? When when are you actually going? Uh, well, we, we sort of finish it. It starts in late June, yeah, and right. uh, the tour sort of basically culminates with the Hamden Court Palace Flower Show, which is around the sort of 7th uh, of July. I, I've, got, I've got here, Jim, 20th of June officially through to the 4th of July. That's right. So, um, yeah, so it, it's a couple of weeks. And, uh, but, and also what we've added in, which I'm very excited about, is a, a tour to the Bombay Sapphire Gin Distillery because you can't... That's very horticultural. I'm glad you put that in. Uh, 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 no, it is. Because it's become really popular, the whole, you know, pop-up gin bar and boutique yep. gin distilleries now. And it is the connection to botanicals because mm. that's obviously the basis of, of creating gin. So we're sort of looking at what botanicals go into... Uh, the process of manufacturing gin, which I think is fasc- yeah, absolutely fascinating. Well, of course, uh, Australian gins now are, are, are the in thing at the moment yep. with all our, our um, you know, our local indigenous uh, That's right. um, yeah, yeah, pepperberry and, gin. Yeah. And, yes, yeah, all, all that of that. Sort of stuff, so yeah. I think it'd be fascinating. And they've done tours at the Botanic Gardens here, um, gin tours. Where I remember asking Tim whether whether you had the gin tasting before you started or after, after you finished. You finished. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you might have quite unruly participants. <laughs> I wonder whether people went for the gin or for the garden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I've always figured that they mix quite nicely. So <laughs> I think so too. I think uh, so, too. so if people wanted to join you on the tour, though, Jim, it's really important, I guess, that they start considering it and uh, and perhaps uh, get in touch with Australian studying abroad and get a, um, uh, an itinerary. They can, and there's a link on my website too. But, yeah, uh, yeah. as I say, it's, it's really, uh, I think, for Australian gardeners, it's a way of drawing inspiration of how we can garden a bit better here as well mm. using Australian plants. I mm. think there's a really strong connection, and it's probably the first time ever um, that that has happened. I mean, you know, it, I, I sort of get a bit frustrated while we're still creating English-style gardens here in Australia, where we should sort of be looking a bit more open-minded and exploring our own plants and our own culture a little bit more. So I'm very excited about Mm. it. And, of course, a lot of Australians will now be a a bit more familiar with Piet Waldolf's work because of the the film that's been showing recently round... Well, I know it's been showing in Melbourne Mm. um, to great audiences, but uh, they'll be very uh, interested to actually visit some of his, his real gardens. That's right. And, of course, don't forget with ASA Tours, we, they always have an opportunity for some visiting some gardens where you actually sit in the garden, you have lunch in the garden. It's just such a delightful way of travelling. It, it is. It's a very personal sort of experience, isn't it? Mm. Very personal. You meet the, the real gardeners that own the gardens or those that have designed the gardens, and uh, it's uh, you have 
Find out, and, and, and Stephen and I noticed this in France earlier this year, it's the personalities of some of the owners mm. of the gardens that just make the visit so delightful. Yeah. And, you, and it's the sort of thing you can't do as a private tourist. Exactly. No, no I mean, certainly, uh, you're right, Stephen. It's, it's just to, to sort of collate an itinerary like that and get access to private gardens and to meet designers, it's just virtually impossible to do that on your own. You, you really need to get onto one of these sort of tours. Mm. Now, uh, I mean, all praise to ASA for, for putting this new tour on because I think it's really going to appeal to a wide range of people because, as I say, those that are still traditionists uh, don't miss out because you are going to places like Great Dixter and Hidcote and Sissinghurst and, and all of that. But uh, to have this, this overlay of, of modern gardens to see what designers are doing because they're thinking in terms of, of the climates getting warmer. And it's, it's really the way we should be approaching our gardens here too. And to have Jim there to interpret it all for you. Absolutely. Very special. Yes. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, it's also very exciting to go to Hampton Court Flower Show because that's, it, Hampton Court's sort of the breeding ground of a lot of the, the future designers and the younger designers now. And they have, they have, it's actually a big, people don't realise it's a bigger show than the Chelsea Flower mm. Show and they get more people than the Chelsea Flower Show. Mm. It just hasn't got the same history, so people sort no, of, it, they, it they have to get to Chelsea. No, it's been around since 1999. Yeah. Um, yes. It's actually still quite a new show, but, but what's happening is they've got different categories. So they've got categories like uh, conceptual gardens where uh, designers can really push the boundaries, become a little bit more artistic and creative um, and a bit more interpretive too. So it's a chance to really sort of see where the future of design is going in Europe uh, and, and to meet some of these designers because you, you just don't get... Because it's a bigger space, you're not packed in shoulder to shoulder like mm. you are the Chelsea mm, Yes. You know, you it's can. almost its own worst enemy, Chelsea, in a way, isn't it? Because well, it is just well, it so is. crowded. It mm. is. And, and funnily enough, you know, slowly I think some of the sponsors are sort of jumping across to Hampton Court because you do have, the, you know, a bigger space. Uh, you can buy things at Hampton Court. You can't buy plants at the Chelsea mm. Flower Show. Yes. At Hampton Court, there's a lot of educational displays and there's things for kids. So it's, a, it's more of a gardener's show and, uh, and quite different at Chelsea Flower Show. So if you've never been to Hampton Court, I highly recommend it. Mm, fantastic. Now, um, for people who are really interested in going, as I mentioned, the, uh, the physical dates of the tour are 20th of June to the 4th of July. Um, you can go and have a look at uh, all of uh, the information about the tour by going to the website. Now, I'll give that out. It's uh, asatours.com.au, nice and easy to remember. Or if you just punch in Australians studying abroad, it will all come up. Um, or you can also give them a call. They will send out all the literature about the tour uh, to you. Their number is 98226899. And, of course, Jim, if people aren't available to go in June or July of next year, um, you are also rerunning um, the trips to Japan later in the year in November, and I think you're running them again in, in 2020. Yeah, that's right, yeah. No, I, love, I love Japan, so, and I think autumn's the, the best time. From a oh. designer's point of view, yes. the best time to see uh, Japanese gardens.
No, no cherry blossom, but <laughs> no. Well, see, yeah, the thing, the cherry cherry blossom's really good to see, but it's quite a fickle thing. In, yeah, in there. You've got to make calendar. it on the right day, virtually, don't you? You exactly. do. But also from a Zen point of view, uh, cherry blossom breaks the Zen. So, um, if you want to actually experience that sort of Zen whole concept of. Uh, the Japanese uh, temple garden, autumn is the prime time to see them. Absolutely, and the hills just light up with colour. It's quite incredible. It is. Yeah. Well, Jim, um, yeah, thanks for talking to us this morning. I, I do hope the tour goes really well because I think it's going to be a fascinating one and I do, uh, I do highly recommend it to, to our listeners. If you, if you want a whole different slant on, on, uh, on uh, Gardens of England, I think this is a must and, and uh, so much of what you're going to see is going to translate to, um, to gardens and the climate back here in Australia. So absolutely fantastic. All the best with it, Jim, and thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Pat. How good's the rain? Oh, <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, we just need a little bit more, but not for next weekend. <laughs> not that I'm greedy or anything. How's your garden, Stephen? Uh, look, it's not too bad, actually. I think it's going to be lovely for its opening next weekend. Uh, but that's due mainly to lots of sweat and hard work, yeah. uh, getting it cleaned and ready. And that's we- Craig, though, not you. <laughs> oh, gee, thanks, Jim. Yeah, no, Craig's, Craig's the mulch mover. Right. Uh, and, and I'm the, the weeder. So I'm the one that has to get down on their hands and knees and get all the weeds out uh, of the way. And he comes in behind me screaming at me because I'm not working fast enough. Well, I'm, I'm sure that people will love your garden. You're, you're one of the great, uh, Plantsmen that we've got in Australia, so uh, I'm, I'm uh, very jealous of everyone that will be going to that next weekend. Oh, well, thank you, Jim. That's very kind of you. And uh, I'm going to be really jealous because I probably won't be able to go on your tour to England, but I would love to do that tour. It well, you're fantastic. always away, though, doing your own tours, Steve. Yeah, well, that's part of the problem because I'm doing my own tours for Australians studying abroad. I don't get much time to do anything else. And where's your next tour to? Uh, well, ours is booked out to Morocco right. for, for next April. So I can't uh, come to that? No, but you could come to Madagascar in uh, late September right, okay. next year. So I've got the Madagascan tour has just been opened because it's, uh, it's one of the hardest places in the world to get figures and facts and things organised. So they've only just recently got the final figures through uh, on the costing for the tour. So it's only just really opened. So if people want to go to Madagascar, now is the time to look at that. Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting, though, that garden tourism is just such a growing... Mm. Um, uh, enterprise now globally that people are just really, really interested in doing something. It's, you know, not getting involved in politics or religion, or mm. um, but but just learning about gardens and exploring culture through gardens. I think it's just a really fascinating way of exploring another country's culture. Yep, I, I quite agree. Yeah. Absolutely agree. Yep. Okay, thanks a million, Jim, and all the best with the tour, but I'm sure we'll speak before then. Have a great weekend. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Right, that that, uh, number, if you'd like to join us this morning, we are running through until 9.15. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Jump on the phones, give us a call. The number is 94190155. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Jan on the outside line, 94198377. We're going to go uh, next to uh, Max out in Thornbury. Good morning, Max. Oh, hello. Thanks for waiting. That's, that's fine. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've planted a summer muscat grape about um, two, two or three weeks ago, and there's no signs of life. Um, 
I'm wondering when I should expect um, at least some green shooting um, or um, whether I should go and get a replacement plant. Uh, um, I think it's still reasonably early for grapes to be shooting, mm-hmm. uh, especially if it's a newly planted one. Was it bare-rooted or pot-grown? Um, look, it was in a pot, but um, I... Yeah, so... I, yeah, it was a smallish pot, so... Mm. Um, Do you remember whether the potting mix stuck together when it came out of the pot or whether it just all fell away? Look, it was quite loose and most of it fell away. Yeah, so it it was probably a newly potted, Mm. bare-rooted grapevine. If it was a bare-rooted one, it will take longer to come into leaf. Um, I mean, I've got ornamental grapes at work and they're still dead sticks at this stage. Yeah, mine is too. So I'm down on the coast and you would expect mine to be shooting fairly soon, Mm. but it's earlier than yours and mine has no shoots on it yet. Mine is just starting. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I think you're being a bit preemptive to worry about it at this point. Okay, um, yeah. Certainly in a few weeks' time, it should be starting to show things. Otherwise, you might have a problem. Okay. All right. Look, thanks very much. Good <laughs> luck. Okay, then. Good luck. Not wanting to miss out. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Yeah, ta-da. Okay, uh, let me see. Next up, we have um, Anne out in Hawthorne. Good morning, Anne. Oh, good morning, Pam. Um, I'm downsizing rather a large garden and I want to save some things from the bulldozer. Mm-hmm. The main one being a mature contorted filbert. Yeah. Um, it has been moved twice in its life but not at this time of the year. It's just budding up. Ooh, yes. Um, but I think, you know, if anyone wants to come and get it um, it might save it. Um, I have also, you were talking about staghorns, and I put one many years ago on, onto a locust tree. It's now all round the locust tree trunk. Um, I've heard they're reasonably easy to remove in pieces, but if somebody wants to have a go at some of that, um, I've got shell ginger and a few other things that I can't think of, um, you know, but could... Cuttings could be taken. Um, oh, I've got the orange clivies. Well, they're easy enough. You could easily well, dig those. Yes, if anyone mm. wants them. I've got quite a few. Um, and some um, blood lilies. Um, they're always beautiful. Mm, fabulous. Well, they though. are, but if anyone wants to come and get them, yeah. I'd be very grateful. Um uh, and I've got two, well, I have got three, um, and I'm pretty certain they're the soft ferns. Um, one I think I've got a home for, but there are two others that haven't been doing very well in the warmer, in the, in the drier years we've had. But if anyone's interested in those. So, Anne, have you left your, um, your contact details with Liz? Well, I just gave, no, I haven't. Okay. Okay. Are you happy to give that out on air, or do you want me to put you back to Liz, and we can pass those on if anyone uh, is interested? Uh, Look, I can give my mobile number. Right. Okay. We'll go ahead. O four five zero. Yes. Four hundred. Yes. Five six nine. Okay. So o four five zero. Four hundred five six oh was it or nine? Uh, five six, five, six nine. nine. Yep. Okay. 
It's it's so sad when you have to leave a garden. Mm. Um, so good on you for you know at least trying to find homes for some of the important things. Yeah, especially if you know yeah. that the place is going to be raised to the ground. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it, that's right. Yeah, it's sad not to try and rehouse some of these plants. And certainly a decent-sized contorted filbert is quite a valuable plant. So, oh, yeah. Well, I'll, that's what I was thinking. Mm. I mean, I don't care even if a landscaper comes and gets it and gets it and uses it somewhere. It would save its life. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's old. It's been, you know, in another, in my parents-in-law garden, and then it came here, and then we moved it, and so it's, it's been around, but it's really beautiful. Yeah. I have roses. Unfortunately, I'm not sure what they are, but um, look... Yeah, but if somebody wanted a, a few roses to whack into a garden bed somewhere, I mean, if they were pruned back hard now and shifted, they'd be yeah. fine. They'd be fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Mm. Yeah. And you might at least be able to tell people what colours they are. <laughs> yeah. Yes, perhaps, Stephen. <laughs> perhaps. Oh, right. They haven't been in flower for a year, so... Oh, so okay. you may have forgotten well, by now. To mm. remember this. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, good luck anyway. I hope, I hope it works out and you get lots of people coming and taking things... Okay. I have a couple of, um, or one small um, ginkgo. Okay. And and a, 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 what are those other things? Pomegranate that mm. I planted just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. No, well, they'd all shift quite well. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, look, hopefully somebody would like something and they can give me a ring. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks right. very much. Thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye. And if you missed it, if you'd like to contact Anne, her number again is 0450 400 569. And what suburb was she in? So the pe- people... Hawthorne. Hawthorne. So, yes, so somebody nearby probably would suit fantastically well. Yep. Yes, exactly. Before we go to the next uh, caller, we have had uh, a query from the outside line. Anna from Coburg uh, wants to know what kind of oil was used to put the flowers in, Penny. Um, Look, I tend to use olive oil for everything because it's cheap and if you can get a good organic olive oil, then you know there's no other chemicals or anything in there. So I would, for this, I would use a light olive oil because Anna's right, a, a, a... um, yeah, a full-bodied, true, a full-bodied yeah. olive oil is very strong. Yes. Is very strong and has very strong flavour. But if you can get a, a good light one, then that would be fine. But you can also use almond oil, um, coconut oil, and macadamia um, oil. Would that yeah, be? Yeah, possibly macadamia and ho- jojoba as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can use those to either put the flowers into, or you can also use it to put the essential oil drops into to actually make a massage oil or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All I need is the masseuse as well. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's next go to Margaret in Ringwood. Good morning, Margaret. Oh, good morning. Yes, I've got a wagandia that's flopped down, it's huge, it's a rogue. What do I do with it? Just prune it down if it's in the way. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, and Wagandi is one of those things that will sucker madly. So you're doing yeah, that too. Yeah, so you'll end up with lots of suckers. So you need to get in and pull out any suckers that are coming up where you don't want them. Yeah. Um, and so it's one of those plants that has a zest for life, so it's just a matter of taking control. 
um, and keeping it within bounds. But it will always keep sending up suckers where you don't want them and all that sort of stuff. But it is a truly remarkable-looking plant. Um, just be careful that you wear strong gloves and things when you're dealing with the Wigandia, though, because it has bristle-like hairs on the stems that almost whack, work like fiberglass, and they'll go into your fingers, and uh, it can be quite irritating. So uh, uh, make sure you put on a pair of welding gloves or whatever <laughs> when you go out in the garden to deal with Wigandia. I know yeah. I, I try and remember to put mine on when I go and deal with my Wigandia, which I will have to do in due course, although it's been madly frosted, so I've just got some blackened stems in the garden at the moment. But it will come back again. What's uh, the ideal size for it? Well, from its perspective, the bigger the better. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but from your perspective, maybe not. Almost horizontal as well. Yeah, so look, it's just really a matter of control. So just you can take it back as far as you feel you want to. Yes. So don't be frightened of it. I mean, you could cut Wagandia off at ground level and it will all come up again from the root system, probably far more vigorously than it did last time. Yes. Um, so really you can't kill it. So the issue is, is just to try and keep it within bounds in the area that you want it to stay in. So you have the flowers and then cut it back and then um, control it. Yes. Uh, sounds good. Yeah, right. yeah. So it's it's just one of those things. I mean, you don't have to do it every week like you have to cut the grass. So no, it's, no, it's no. not that sort of uh, time consuming. But yes, you do need to spend a little time on it and it can raise a bit of a sweat by the time you're finished with it. If I am fed up with it, what would I replace it with that looked pretty much the same? <sighs> Goodness me. Well, there's nothing I can think of that looks pretty much the same as a Wigandia. No, it's one of those uh, plants that's quite unique in its yes. in its bold <laughs> outline and huge leaves and great big heads of mauve flowers. Yes. Um, I mean, I think you'd have to move on to something else. If you're looking for something with sort of a big tropically looking leaf, yes. um, you could do worse than planting a fatsia. The, the, oh, yes. uh, they have great big leaves and there's a couple of rather beautiful variegated forms of them out there now in occasionally available in nurseries. Yes. Um, and they don't suck us, so they're going to stay sort of more or less put, but it will still give you a large, bold, tropical-esque leaf, yes. but, on a, but in a smaller scale. I might add, though, if you're going to try and get rid of your Wigandia, yes. there is no way of getting rid of it other than to cut and poison it. Uh, I mean, it's just going to keep coming back for years and years and years and years. And although I don't recommend using poisons, uh, the only way you're going to get rid of it is to cut the branches off at ground level and paint the tops of the stems with, with neat glyphosate uh, to kill the plant out because you're not going to get rid of it otherwise. Oh, well, thanks very much. I'll think which way to go. All right. Fantastic. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, it took me years to get a Wigandia going in my garden, and now I couldn't get rid of it even if I wanted to. (laughs) (laughs) But there you go. It's a great plant. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. If you'd like to join us uh, this morning uh, to speak to the team on air, we have Stephen Ryan and Penny Woodward, 94190155, or if you'd like to have a chat to Jan on the outside line, 94198377. Stephen, we've finally got time oh, to right. talk some quick, plants. Quick, let's. Yes. Well, one thing I'm terribly excited about at the moment is the fact that uh, a range of peonies have become available in Australia that um, we haven't had until quite recently, uh, and they're known as the Etos. Yes, I've uh, just been reading up about uh, them. Really interesting. Yeah, uh, back in the mid, I think it was about 1948, a Japanese breeder actually managed to cross a tree peony with a herbaceous peony. Mm-hmm. 
and that's where the Itos come from, and his mm. name was Ito, so that's where uh, the group were named after him. It was considered impossible until he started. Now they're doing it in great quantities because they can, they can sort of freeze pollen with liquid nitrogen and do all sorts of things to hold things back and make things happen. And, you know, so we've got all the technology now that we can use. But when Mr. Ito produced his first uh, intersectional <coughs> hybrids, um, it was considered impossible. Uh, he never lived to see them flower. Uh, the that first, was such a shame. It is sad. Uh, his um, son-in-law was actually the one that kept the peonies going and got them out into commerce and saw them flower, and 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 now they've become seriously popular. And they've got the best of both groups of peonies. Mm. Uh, they have big flowers that sit on big, tall, upright stems. We saw quite a few of them growing in gardens when we were in the south of France with the ASA tour uh, earlier in the year. Uh, so they sit up and look at you. They're big flowers, often quite heavily perfumed. Uh, they don't seem to have the same problems with botrytises and, and fungal infections that herbaceous peonies and even some of the tree peonies can get. They have nice, clean foliage that lasts right through the season. They tend to die down like a herbaceous peony, although some some of them will have sort of knuckly, twiggy bits at ground level, so they don't tend to disappear completely below ground level. Uh, they normally stay at around about the metre high or just a little more, uh, and they are truly remarkable peonies. So uh, I got onto a supplier this year and I got a batch of them. I think I've got eight cultivars, um, and I'm terribly excited to have them, and all eight have gone straight into the garden at home as well. Um, so... At this stage, they're mainly in shades of pinks and creams to lemons, um, but there are other colours mm. in the range, but that's all we've got at this stage. Uh, but more will come online as, as time goes on. And I am told by the grower that unlike the herbaceous peonies that tend not to flower in Melbourne terribly well because we don't get enough cold, uh, the itos should be fine. Mm. So if you wanted to grow them in, in suburban Melbourne, um, uh, I am told they will be perfectly good to grow. The only thing you've got to be careful of, particularly with the, anything that's in the sort of herbaceous line, is that you don't bury them too deeply. Uh, the growth buds need to be right on ground level. And I'd say the same with the itos as with the herbaceous peonies. If you bury them too deeply, they'll never flower. Okay. So I think that's really exciting because I used to grow peonies when I lived in Ballarat. And yes. I loved oh. just only one or two of them in, yes. the, in the herb garden. Yes. And, um, I just love them. I yeah. adore them. They are just I, the I most have not things. been able to grow them now for yeah. Well, maybe the Ito so might be worthwhile for you to look into. Yeah. Mm, yes. So. Yeah, so lovely things. They're not inexpensive to buy um, but nor is the best of things in life exactly. in most cases anyway you know we were talking perfumes before I mean mm. uh, if you're paying 10 bucks for a bottle of perfume you're probably mm. not getting anything particularly no, good you're getting yes chemi- <laughs> chemicals rather than <laughs> yes. Um, yes so yeah so you know you'll pay a little more for some of these plants but they'll go on for years and years and years and years and years uh, getting better and better and better as as the years go by honestly they yeah. were so spectacular yeah. in France weren't yeah. they oh. I mean, Incredible the, things. The size of the flowers, were yeah. in, and just amazing. And there's something. There's two groups of plants, I reckon, that don't seem to be able to get too big, no matter how big they get, and that's peonies and magnolias. Mm. The flowers never seem to become vulgar and gross, no matter how big they are. Because I've got a Japanese tree peony in the garden at home that's got a flower the size of a soup tureen. It is huge. This big, pe- 
pink confection, and it's so over the top. It's not what I would normally have planted. In fact, I thought I'd planted a different variety, I might add, uh, but I couldn't pull it out now. It's just so gorgeous. But it's completely over the top, this great big Barbara Cartland-esque pink confection, but it doesn't look gross, even though the flowers are enormous. Yes. Um, but certainly some of the Itos have really quite large flowers. Yes. Um, they're very popular for cut flowers because they, they get nice strong stems, and uh, I guess if you planted up half a paddock of them, you could make a fortune in years to come out of the cut blooms. Uh, I was told that uh, the grower I get these from, he sells the blooms wholesale for $1.50 a stem, uh, and he still gets okay. to keep his plants. Yeah. So it's not bad extra money coming in from sale That's of right. the flowers. Yeah. Uh, and many of them have a really good perfume. And I'm sure, I'm sure any people of Chinese descent... Um, because I know some of our Chinese gardeners that I was talking to years ago, Penny, all they wanted to do was to be able to grow the herbaceous peonies in Melbourne. And I kept saying, well, I'm sorry, yeah. but you're well, not going to yeah. succeed. The Itos might be the alternative. It's and the perfect in some ways, they're an even better peony than the herbaceous ones as a garden plant because they have such strong stems. Yes. So they're not so inclined to sort of flop and fall over yes, to the exactly. sides. Um, so as a garden plant, I think the itos could be the way to go in the future for Melbourne gardeners. Mm. Having said that, of course, tree peonies are perfectly growable around oh, Melbourne. Yes, yes. Uh, they don't need the winter chill that the herbaceous mm. peonies tend to need. Uh, so they've always been uh, an option, uh, I guess. And some of them are about to burst into flower, hopefully for next mm. weekend. Uh, and um, so, yeah, so peonies, I mean, they're just one of those sort of plants that, I mean, they've got such a huge history behind them. There's all sorts of wonderful sort of oriental myth and, uh, and mystery about the plants, mm. uh, where they came from, how they evolved. Uh, and, of course, they've been growing peonies in China for centuries, millennium, basically. Uh, and so... You know, the, the breeding lines are lost in time and, you know, there, there's just something remarkably romantic about growing peonies. And so uh, I think the Itos are a wonderful thing now to have in Australia and uh, I'm terribly excited to have some to sell this year. And uh, uh, it'll be first in best dressed, I suppose. Mm. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I've only bought in a young plant. It's probably not going to flower this season, although it's a nice big fat crown. Um, but, but the, the foliage, foliage is a lovely colour. Oh, the foliage is beautiful. It is. Uh, and they all seem to have really good, attractive foliage. Uh, and my grower says that it doesn't seem to burn in the summer like the tree peonies and herbaceous can when we get those really hot days too. Okay. So it keeps its foliage nice so, and clean. So it's all a bit experimental. It is. We don't so know all that much really. Yeah. We're guessing a little bit. But from his experience, and having said yeah. that, he's up in the Dandenong, so it's different again. Uh, but he reckons they're the peonies to grow in the future. Mm. Having said that, he's got a couple of herbaceous peonies he reckons will flower in Melbourne as well. So I'm stocking okay. a few of those to have a crack at them as well. And he says they're the next generation of herbaceous peonies. Okay. So so, you know, things are moving forward in this group of plants. Right. But unfortunately, it moves fairly slowly because from seed peonies can take years to flower. So to build up a new hybrid group or even just a new cultivar, you can grow it for so long before you can actually flower it and make sure it's something worthy of going on to the next step with. Mm. Uh, you can almost be ready for retirement before you release your first <laughs> plants. So it takes a lot of passion uh, yeah. to keep these things uh, moving forward in the breeding lines. Mm-hmm. So there you go. So Itopia. Peonies, which is spelled I-T-O-H. Um, and uh, I think they're wonderful plants. Fantastic. So there you go. Okay, uh, let me see. Uh, uh, okay, um, I've been asked if I can give out the phone number 
um, of Anne, who's giving away the plants. Ah, yes. Mm. Uh, do have a paper and pencil ready when you're listening to the gardening show because um, we often give out uh, bits and pieces like this that you do need to write down. Okay, Anne's phone number, 0450-400-569. All right, now also, uh, Kathy in Sunshine West wants to know if it's true that dishwashing detergent can be used as a soil wetter in dried out hydrophobic pot plants. Uh, look, the <laughs> the soil wetters that are used have a detergent base. So yeah, the, they're the based ones on that, the one yeah. that you buy. And but look, I don't use them, and I wouldn't use them. Yes, they're not organic. Um, there are some that are based on um, a, a humic acid, which yeah. it, which are organic and and are worth using. If you put detergent on your soil, you're going to kill a lot of things in your soil, I think as so. well as um, mm. it, it will help to get yeah, the it, water it through. Will, it will actually do what she wants it to yes. do, but it's the side issues that exactly. are the problem. Mm. And, and getting the right amount. So if you've got dry pot plants that aren't taking water, I'd be tipping them out, putting in some new potting mix. Make sure you get a fair bit of coir, add, add some extra water holding mm. um, substance to it, um, and coir or co- coconut um, bark is, is one of the best things to use. Um, and just repot them. Mm. Um, I wouldn't be putting dishwashing no. detergent. No, on my I wouldn't pots. either. No, no, I think it's very risky. So, so technically, yes, but no, I wouldn't use it. No. Yep. Okay. And <coughs> the other query: a listener has an old apricot tree, and it has lots of gummy sap coming out of the trunk. Gummosis. Gummosis, obviously. Mm. Is there anything she can do for it? Well, the only thing I've ever done for it is to clean the gummosis off and then paint the wound with some. Bordeaux paste, would that yeah. be what you'd do, yeah. Penny? Yeah, or a white, or an oil, a white yeah. oil of some sort. But yeah. yeah, something that's just going to kill, try and kill the source of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah uh, it's If it's quite... really bad in one area, I would consider at this time of year, not so not in winter, mm. but now that it's regrowing, I would consider removing. Yeah, all remove of that the whole section. limb. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, but if it's sort of in odd spots all over the place, I'd just mm. as you say. Or if it's a really it. major limb on the tree or yeah. something, and you're going to deform the tree by removal. Yeah. Uh, but yes, removal is always a, an option, isn't it? Yeah. And mm. and the the thing is that gummosis occurs if you prune in winter on apricot trees. Yes. So now that they're budding and coming into flower and stuff, it is re- the sap's flowing more readily. Yeah, and so it's reasonably it's, safe. It's reasonably yes. safe to prune. Okay. So don't prune. So don't prune out Don't your prune apricot in trees in winter. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Stephen, we've got time for another plant. All right. Uh, oh, choices, choices, <coughs> choices. Oh, by the way, all these pictures have gone up on the uh, Facebook page. If good, 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 good. So um, uh, if you want to have a look at them, yep. just go to 3CR Gardening Show and up will come our Facebook page. Yep. Uh, this little white number is flowering in my garden prolifically at the moment. Uh, it's a thing called uh, Pachyphragma. Macrophyllum, which is a bit of a mouthful, and it's related to wasabi. And it go, oh. grows in the hills of northern Turkey and the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a self-seeding, clumping perennial, so it becomes a sort of a ground cover by self-sown seedlings. But it's never so dense that other things can't come up through it. But it makes a great ground cover in semi to comparatively heavy shade. And it comes out with a massive white flowers at this time of the year. 
and the flowers are edible, but would you bother? Um, you yes. could throw them through a salad, I suppose. <laughs> it's, um, slightly cabbagey flavoured, considering it's in that family. Um, and it gets quite large, leathery, heavily veined, rounded or kidney-shaped leaves on it, which are very pleasant during the summer months. And in the summer, it does become quite um, weed-suppressant because the leaves are quite large, and so it doesn't yeah. let light go through to the ground. And it, uh, it does need a bit of moisture. It like doesn't want to get dry-dry. It didn't, it didn't like it in my garden. Didn't it? Oh, no. dear. So yeah, so, uh, I mean, where I'm growing it in the garden at home, it's in a quite shaded spot under some maples, and there's a big filbert tree there as well. Um, it doesn't get wet-wet, but it probably never gets dried right out. No. So it's a spot where it just has a little bit of moisture. Um, and I think it's looking lovely at the moment, this sheet mm. of little white flowers. It's like a sort of giant alyssum, isn't it? It is. Yes, yeah. you're right. So the flowers bigger, look like that. bigger flowers, but yeah. it's like, like the alyssum or yeah. sweet alice. Yeah, and so I think pachyphragma is lovely, and I think it will be one of the feature plants of my garden next weekend when people come in because I've got yep. an area about the size of this studio covered in it. Uh, and the studio is not vast, but it's big by garden scales. Yep. Uh, and and it's looking lovely at the moment, just this massive mm. little white flower. So Pachyphragma macrophyllum. And I guess if we've got time, I'll quickly mention this other one that I really love. Now, this is a challenge to grow. It's a woodland, Chinese woodland daisy, actually. Wow, and it doesn't a, look like a daisy. No, it doesn't look like a daisy. <laughs> Not at uh, all. Uh, it's a thing called Cyneelsis, uh, which is S-Y-N-E-I-L-E-S-I-L. I-S, which is a bit of a mouthful, aconitifolia, meaning it's got leaves like an aconitum, which is the monkshood, and it does sort of have that look. And it's one of the most entertaining leaves when it comes up in the spring because the leaves sort of sit like a, a folded-down umbrella, um, and they've got these sort of spokes that come down of the leaflets, uh, and it's all covered in white fur. It almost looks like some sort of weird little fungus. Mm. It's a mm. strangest foliage. Uh, and then it sort of opens up, and it's got this quite intricate aconitum-like leaf, funnily enough. Uh, and later in the summer, it'll send up a spike to about um, 60 centimetres tall with minute little pinky white gappy daisies of no particular great merit. They're pleasant, but they're not showy. But you grow it mainly for its rather beautiful leaves. But it does like a cool, moist aspect. I think if I was growing it in a, uh, in a Melbourne garden, I'd probably want to grow it in a pot, mm. and I'd actually probably sit it in a saucer of water for the summer um, and have it in a fernery or a shade house or somewhere like that. Uh, and then it would be, I think, quite growable. But if you put it out in the open ground and it dries out even a little bit too much, it will just disappear. Mm. So Cyneosis aconitifolia, uh, a really intriguing Chinese woodlander. It um, is intriguing, isn't mm. it? Yeah. And everybody comments on it when they see it in leaf, and I, I just love it. It took me years to buy it because I'd seen it when I was in England and thought, I've got to have that plant. Um, and it eventually became available here. I can't even remember where I, I sourced it initially. Um, and um, I've been growing it now for years. It certainly grows well in a pot. I think if it was in a pretty ornamental pot, it could actually be quite a nice feature plant. And because you grow it mainly for its foliage, and that lasts from spring right through till autumn when it dies down again, um, it pays its way. Mm. Um, and the flowers are sort of incidental mm. and don't matter much. Yep. So yep. Cyneosis. Okay. Uh, I think it's lovely. Excellent. All right, next we're going to Nick out in Elwood. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Go uh, ahead. Yeah, I just have... Um I have a house in Geelong that we go to every two to three weeks, uh, not every day. And um, we're, now we're finding eggs, or we're finding eggs, broken eggs, quite large eggs, right through the backyard and some in the front yard. And I'm unsure what creature's been putting them there. They're all broken and they're fairly large eggs. 
What, chook egg size? Yeah, chook eggs, and they're, they're probably the large chook eggs. Well, I reckon they're chook eggs. Um, well, yeah. it's possible that they're ducks oh, could as be ducks. well, yeah. because ducks are certainly laying at the moment mm. um, in our area. But um, I, I, do you put your eggs into your compost or something? Um, I've got one of those cold get-eye bins where I put eggshells in, yeah, but... Is I it? haven't been doing that a lot lately, no. Okay, because I was just wondering if it, maybe it was rats or something getting in and, and um, yes, moving, the, moving the eggshells around the garden from the well, compost. It's in one of those old getty bins no, no, that probably no, wouldn't no. anyway. No, would no, no. Mm. no um, pretty much something I know because I usually just put, uh, yeah, I haven't been doing that. And um, these are fairly large and they're like broken in the middle and sometimes you'll see the yolk still in there. Okay. Um, I I think that either you've got someone, a, a neighbour with chooks that's being raided by crows or um, mm. ravens or butcher birds or, you know, one of the birds that, that feeds on um And if they're not eggs, collecting the eggs, well, then, um, yes, the animals the, will get Then in. the animals will get in, or, or alternatively, it could be duck eggs, because I know that ducks are laying at the moment. Um, if you've got any water anywhere nearby, then... Then again, birds like magpies and ravens will get in there and and will take the eggs mm. and will sometimes drop them when they're trying to you know. And of course, if you're not in residence all that often, it's a nice it's quiet a, place indeed. for them to go and clean out the yep. inside of the eggs without being disturbed by yes. anybody. Yeah. Mm. So you don't think it's rats or mice? I doubt it. Mm, I, I doubt it as well. I think it's more likely to be, as Penny said, something like ravens or something that are collecting the eggs from somewhere else and eating them in your backyard. Or dropping yeah. them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. That's Take care then. Bye. Thank you. If it had been closer to Easter, I might have suggested Easter eggs. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, we've also got a query uh, asking, is there anything you can do about brown rot or leaf curl at this time of the year? It's not much you can do about leaf curl once mm. it's appeared. Yeah. Um, I, if I have small amounts of leaf curl on my tree, I remove those leaves. Mm. Um, and that often stops it from spreading further into the tree. Yeah. But you can't really spray. But you can't spray no. once it's come out of the bud. Mm. Um, and I, if it's brown rot, then you probably do need to spray, but it depends what sort of brown rot mm. it is and what it's affecting. Because if it's brown rot affecting citrus, um, you, you do need to spray that. Mm. So, uh, maybe yeah. take an example along to the local nursery. Yeah, but but something like echo fungicide um, is a relatively mild. That's a potassium bicarbonate spray. Mm. Um, it, it's certainly a good starting point. Okay. Um, but with any fungal thing, as long as it's not too widespread, my first response is to remove the leaves that are yeah. being affected yes. or the fruit that are being affected, yep. so that it doesn't spread any further. Yep. Okay. Done. All right, we are running through until 9.15. If people want to jump on the phone line, uh, you'll have to jump on quickly, but uh, we do have time to take a few more calls. So the number, 94190155, or to speak to Jan on the outside line, 94198377. Pam, can I just... Yes. One thing, Um, next in October, and I'm just saying this because I'm not going to be able to come in um, next month oh. because we've got the big tomato sale happening in the Botanic Gardens in Tasmania. So if you happen to be um, in Tasmania um, around after the 17th of October, so I think it's the sale days of the 18th and the 20th of October, 
um, Margot, the wonderful horticulturalist in the gardens, as part of the celebration of um, our book being mm-hmm. launched in the gardens, and, and this is the tomato book that Karen and I have written, um, she's actually grown 200 different cultivars. Oh, my goodness oh, gosh, gracious. From the book right. to sell at the tomato sale. Fantastic. So if you were contemplating putting your car on the ferry and heading down there <laughs> yeah. and you want And bring some, it back laden and if you want to come back with some fabulously grown beautiful seedlings because they they produce the mm. most they're, they're really tough, strong, squat plants. Yeah. The, the stuff that they've really, really refined how to grow tomato seedlings. And okay. they are just fabulous seedlings. So um, if you were contemplating a trip to Tassie see and taking your car with you, see if you can include those dates because you could bring back some really beautiful yeah, tomato seedlings. Excellent. So very exciting. Yes, yeah. that's great. Stephen, we do have time for another plant. All right, I've got one left, um, and most people will put their noses up if I talk about periwinkle, because uh, yes. vinca major is, as its name would suggest, quite large and therefore a major weed, uh, mm-hmm. and it goes all over the place, uh, and it's very hard to eradicate, and uh, it's one of those things that uh, bush reveg people get really annoyed about. Um, but there is a smaller growing one, which is quite logically called vinca minor, uh, which doesn't seem to have taken off anywhere in the bush as far mm-hmm. as I know. It seems to be reasonably safe, and it's got a whole range of interesting cultivars, um, and it makes a lovely, gentle ground cover in gardens. It's easy to control because it tends to run across the surface so if it goes out from where you want it you can just stick a spade through the edge or whatever and and keep it in bounds and the one I bought along this morning is a golden variegated leaf one and I do like gold variegation and blue flowers and you don't often get them together but uh, in this case you do Uh, it has lovely rich blue flowers and it has a golden centre to the leaf with a green dark green edge around it and I've got it as a ground cover in part of the garden at home and it's just this little carpet of blue flowers not once again, uh, not sort of one against each other, but this sort of spattering of little blue flowers all over the ground in an area that's probably oh, about two or three metres each way. Uh, and you can grow bulbs through it. You can, you, you can use it as a ground cover in amongst other plants. Uh, it will grow right back into quite heavy shade, and the gold foliage is quite useful in dark, shady corners to bring a bit of light in. Uh, the blue flowers are basically spring-oriented, but you will get odd flowers that throw at different times. And there's a whole range of them now. There's a, a silver variegated one. This gold one is called Illumination, which is a reasonably appropriate name for it. Uh, there's a silver-edged one called Ralph Chugat, which I don't think is as appropriate a name for obvious reasons. Uh, there's double blue ones, there's double burgundy ones, there's single white ones, there's green leafed ones. Uh, there's a whole range of vinca minor, and they are very useful plants. They'll spill over walls. You could put them in hanging baskets if you like to hang those things around to bang your head on. Um, uh, they're quite a useful group of plants in lots of different ways. I've so got I've got vinca minor growing mm. in my garden. It's a great ground cover. I think it's, it's a lovely. It's plant. a bit. It's where I've got it growing, it's quite dense. Yeah. And when it's in flower, it is just a mass of oh, purple fantastic. flowers. You can't see the leaves. Yeah, it is a really good plant. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't, you know, I mean, it's been in the country pretty well as long as Vinca Major, and it's shown yeah. no signs of taking off into the bush for whatever reason. Mm. Uh, so I think it's perfectly safe. Mm. Uh, and I don't know whether people are aware of it, but when we were kids, you used to grab the flowers and you'd roll them backwards and forwards, and then eventually you would get a fairy's fishing, a fairy's paintbrush would come out of the centre of the flower. Uh, oh, okay. 
a fairy's paintbrush. Uh, Vinca, <laughs> Maj- Vinca Major has much bigger paintbrushes, but if I pick that up and you have a look at that. It's a, it's a tiny, tiny little Good stem heavens. with a tiny little flower on it that could be a paintbrush. Yeah, there could yes, be a paintbrush, yes, yes. Yes, that's what we used to do as kids. And we used to also suck the nectar out of them okay. as well. Cause, okay. Uh, yeah, Vinca Minor doesn't have as much nectar yeah. as Vinca Major, but there you go. <laughs> um, but I think they're great plants. And mm. so I use Vinca Minor in many of its different forms in the garden at home now. And it will cope with fairly difficult conditions and mm. uh, and still flourish and, and do its thing. I've seen it growing over a brush fence where yeah. it looked amazing coming oh, down would. the side. And oh, it's just yes. this mess. Of purple. Yeah. It's, you know, gorgeous. Yeah, so there you go. Vinca Minor. Don't okay. ever plant Vinca Major. You'll no. regret it. Yeah. Um, but Vinca Minor is a very useful little plant. Excellent. Okay, we'll go next to Jill in East Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Good day, Pam, Penny, Stephen. Hi, Jill. Um, I just thought it'd be interesting for me to give details of my red baronia, which is now just about to burst into flower, and I've had it for four years, so this will be the fourth flowering. And I have it facing east, but to the north of it, I have a rosemary, which makes sure that the, the uh, roots of the baronia aren't, you know, in hot sun. And, of course, I water it three times a week in the summer. And it's really beautiful. It's the, it's the Cerise um, American Beauty coloured one. Mm-hmm. And Probably heterophyllous. Yes. Yeah. And if people, you know, are trying to grow them, because now's the time when they'll be for sale. You know, as soon as they're in flower, they'll be on sale. So I thought, well, maybe it's a good idea to give people an idea of how where to grow it. Mm. They're wonderful old plants, the baronias, but they a lot of people struggle with them. Yeah, mm. but the the the, the tip pink ones about, much about shading the roots is, oh, yes. is yes. really important. Yeah. Yes. And pruning yeah. baronias is really important. Uh, we used to have them in our garden when I was a kid uh, up on Mount Macedon, and Mum always had a brown baronia, and we always <coughs> had the pink baronia, and. We used to take them back by at least a quarter every every year after flowering, to keep them compact yes. and stop them from I falling to I've bits. Been I think I've been guilty of not doing that, so... Oh, well, there's a tip for you, Jill. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we had one pink baronia in our garden, I remember, as a kid that must have been three metres tall, Mm. uh, probably bigger, uh, and we used to cut it back really hard every year, and eventually it got got pushed over sideways by a heavy snowfall uh, one winter, and Dad Dad popped a star stake in the ground and tied it all back again, and it kept going for years after that even. You know, and baronias aren't supposed to like root disturbance or anything. So uh, if they're happy, they can be surprisingly resilient, but they do need pruning and they do need shading of the roots. You're right, Jill. So I don't think I can cut it back to the wood, can I? You can cut back fairly far. Uh, but oh. I'd leave some greenery on it if you can. Yeah. But you'll be oh, surprised well. how it will shoot from the older stems. I think I'll buy another one and put it next door. <laughs> no, well, that's not a bad <laughs> idea anyway enough. because, they're, look, inherently they're not long-lived. Uh, yeah. So, you, you know, I mean, we had one that lasted for 12 years, which was quite exceptional. Well, um, I'm very proud of my four years. Yeah, you're so. doing very well. Uh, but it is one of those plants you need to have a, um, su- uh, a successional sort of uh, uh, program attitude, in place. Yes. Mm. Have the print, have the... Uh, uh, yes, the new prince that yes. they're waiting till the king goes over. That's right, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, baronias are one of those groups of plants, particularly the old brown baronia, because it is inclined to fail. And the, and quite the other quickly. interesting thing I have to tell you is I have so much 
periwinkle, you know, vinca major, mm. but people are always envious of my green garden in summer. <laughs> yeah, well, it does survive almost anything. That's why it's become terribly weedy. But the, oh, yeah. the vinca minor is, is fine. It doesn't seem to have yes, the same I've propensity. That, I've got a bit of that at the back. Mm. So anyway, I'll, I'll, um, when I need to get rid of my vinca major uh, in the easterly position, I'll just go take everything out from there and go from the beginning. Yeah, yes. uh, you'll have to probably because it'll be full I of ink roots. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Penny. That's a pleasure. Bye, okay. Pam. Okay, bye. Ah, okay. Now, uh, very quickly, Margaret from Phillip Island has rung to say that it is ravens that come in and peck the eggs. Mm. They suck out the insides and leave the shells. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that there makes we go. Sense. Yep. And Penny, there's a query about, can you give out the date of your book launch and um, the tomato the, festival? The book launch is not actually open to the public, so mm. we are having a book launch in Tassie, but that's, yeah. Um, but the, we will be there for the, for the tomato sales on the 18th of October and the 20th of October. So the 18th of October, um, it got so busy on the main tomato sale day that they now have a pre, Tomato sale where they charge you ten dollars for the privilege of coming to buy tomatoes, and they <laughs> they still have queues out the gate and down the drive uh, and that's stuff. Wonderful. There's nothing um, like obsessive so that's, gardeners. So that's the Thursday, the 18th. That's the pre-tomato that's sale, the pre. and the main tomato sale is on the 20th. And this is in the Tasmanian Botanic Garden, so you need to come down to Tassie to be able to. Get them, get them. But, but I the know book we have will be available to... elsewhere, will yes, it not? <laughs> yeah. Well, the book's actually already available on my website. Mm-hmm. But um, we're doing it. We're, we're just, it's for various reasons um, to do with distributors going into liquidation. Um, the We've just found a new distributor and they are gradually finding their way into bookshops. Mm-hmm. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Brilliant. Stephen, your garden is open next weekend. Yes, both days, 10 to 4.30, be there. Because <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a fun weekend, particularly if we get reasonably nice weather. And at the risk of sounding immodest, I think my garden's looking pretty good at the moment. So there you go. There so you go. Maybe worth a visit, even if you've been before. Okay. All right. We must go. Uh, you have been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We will be back again next Sunday morning at 7.30. Until then... Bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.